And so that brings us to discussing or talking about or trying to push against this idea about how the origin of the original state of inequality and innocence don't really, you know, pan out, right? You know, as they as they go on and say, you know, yeah, living in a truly egalitarian society might be possible if you're a pygmy or a Kalamari, Kalahari Bushman. But if you want to create a society of true equality today, you're going to have to find out a way to go back to becoming tiny bands of foragers again with no significant personal property. Since foragers require pretty extensive uh, territory to forage in, this would mean having to reduce the world's population by something like 99.9%. Otherwise, the best we can hope for is to adjust the size of the boot that will forever be stomping on our faces, or perhaps to wangle a bit more wiggle room in which some of us can temporarily duck out of its way. Lovely, right? So there, you know, laying it out. The first step for getting out, you know, from freeing, from freeing yourself from the mental prison of uh, of uh, Hobbes and Rousseau, right, um, is to simply abandon this Garden of Eden narrative, right, and this idea that for hundreds of thousands of years, human beings who were as far as we can tell, cognitively similar to us, even if they don't have all the fucking, you know, the furnishings of the type, the cultures and the innovations, you know, the bullshit, whatever narrative or good faith argument you want to approach and take from this. It's kind of ridiculous to assume that for hundreds of thousands of years, everyone on earth didn't have any social organization other than bands of hunter-gatherers, and that there's never been any sort of significant experimentation or deviation from that baseline state, right? It's hard to imagine you know, as they write that, you know, during the 10,000 years in which people were painting on the walls of Tamaria that, or, you know, anywhere else, that there were no types of social organizations that were alternative. It's also kind of ridiculous to assume that they didn't have the capacity to experiment with social organization because is that not a core part of what has driven human history and has driven humanity, you know, to constantly tinker with the social arrangements and relations that we're in? Uh, the idea that they didn't have the capacity for freedom, for self uh, creation, for any sort of like real inner drive or, uh, or or motivation or intent, right, is a bit uh, ridiculous as well. Um, it paints a picture of human beings that are not human beings. They're automatons that are useful for depicting prehistory as this unknowable fog, right? And that this also raises the question, the ultimate question of human history, as they say, quote, is not our equal access to material resources. Land, calories, means of production, much though these things are obviously important, but our equal capacity to contribute to decisions about how to live together. Of course, to exercise that capacity implies there should be something meaningful to decide in the first place, right? So the question then that, you know, we're trying to figure out here that they're trying to flesh out why, you know, a few things. Why is it that we keep discounting the ability of ancestors to have been human beings as we understand human beings to be, right? That we did not some suddenly awake in the Enlightenment, that the Enlightenment resulted in a, sp- a specific type of political forms and social organizations as a consequence of history, but they were not like the first time that people realized they didn't want to be ordered around. They were not the first time that people realized they w- might not want to, they want a social organization where it's not strictly authoritarian, strictly hierarchical, strictly dominating, right? And coercive, right? What if, you know, they're right. What if we treat people from the beginning as imaginative, intelligent, playful creatures who deserve to be understood as such? What if, 
Instead of telling a story about how our species fell from some idyllic state of equality, we ask how we became to be trapped in such tight conceptual shackles that we can no longer even imagine the possibility of reinventing ourselves. And I think that is also one of the reasons why this kind of like feeds directly into why we're talking about it on TMK, right? We are constantly saying the tech that we have is not the tech that we deserve. And it's also the tech that doesn't need to exist. It's a tech that it was chosen, not by us, as a result of decisions by specific investors, you know, concentrations of capital, government bureaucrats, individuals, entrepreneurs, right? And sometimes the input of individuals who were not capitalists. And that as a result, whenever you're seeing a system that's already constructed and working in one way or another, you should ask how it got that way. It was not, it did not fall from the heavens. It was constructed. All these things are material things that were constructed, even if they had ideological aspects to them. How is it that we're in the world that we're in? You know, why are we in the world that we're in? Why do we think the things that we think? You know, most of the things that we think are assumptions that we are told um, make sense, but that as they explain, you know, if you look at the record, don't really make as much sense as you would think and actually are just shortcuts to tell a certain story that is circular and self-referential. This just makes me think of, and this is a bit of a preview of like, uh, more, more to come episodes of TMK, uh, uh, outputs from my own research project. You know, I've been this year, I've been really spending a lot of my time working on this and, you know, uh, uh, project on insurance technology. And so through that, I've also been reading a lot about the history of the insurance industry. And it was really, it's been really interesting. I mean, shout out to this book I just finished reading by a historian at MIT named Kaylee Haran. Um, called Insurance Era, Risk Governance and the Privatization of Security in Post-War America is the name of this book. And it's a fantastic um, history of the insurance industry in the United States um, over the last hundred years and finding out that a lot of uh, a lot of how uh, American society is currently organized, and in ways that people constantly say it couldn't be organized any way, any other way. You know, we couldn't have uh, social safety nets that are any different. We couldn't have a healthcare system that's any different. We couldn't do you know X, Y, or Z in any other way because you know that's America, baby, and we're unique. And it's just a you know that that you know we're not Europe, we're not what Australia, we're not these other places. Is we couldn't have it any other way. In reality, the idea of personal security, of uh, health insurance, um, of all of of what it means to um, govern risk as a community, as a society, all these kinds of myths that have been built up in the U.S. around, like you know, hyper individualization. You know, respond. You know, every person is responsible for themselves. That uh, that you know, healthcare could not be organized in any other way. All of these. This book traces how these were in intentional outcomes by mm -hmm. investments and public mm -hmm. campaigns and political lobbying by the insurance industry, uh, you know, over the last 80, 90 years. Like, it's not even like we have to go that far back in history to do exactly what you just said, Ed, and like trace uh, how what currently exists exists because of the very intentional um, interest and investments by a very small group of people, uh, of corporate executives, of industry uh, associations, 
uh, to to be like, oh shit, that's why everything sucks right now because the insurance industry like literally made a blueprint for this is how uh, risk and security will be organized in America because it benefits us uh, for it to be organized in that way. And lo and behold, that's exactly how it was organized. <laughs> you know, like we don't have to go that far back in history to see exactly that and to see all these like contingency points where things could have been different, where there is these, you know, forks in the road where, you know, which way Western man, one way was chosen because there was a lot of money uh, and, and power and influence pushing us towards that one way versus other equally possible alternatives. More to come on that as I, as I do this project on insurance and just start putting more red string on my cork board and being <laughs> like, damn, I had no idea so much of what's wrong in the world. It's the insurance industry. It's their fault. <laughs> this is my new conspiracy. <laughs> I mean, they are. Yeah, they are. I mean, it's like you talked, it's like what you talked about and what you, you know, in one of your pieces, I remember the, one of the first pieces you, of yours that I read that you wrote after I um, read your book was, uh, uh, about risk pools, right? And about and it had this really fascinating quote in there about how uh, insurance is one of the great ways to privately regulate uh, individuals' lives, right? Mm-hmm. Because you can just immediately circumvent and punish them for decisions, right? You don't even really have to. I mean, it, it's like a, for them, it's a beautiful form of coercive power, you know. So yeah, fuck insurance. <laughs> I say as you work on a massive, a massive I mean, project yeah, about it. Fuck the way that insurance is organized <laughs> right. now. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, <laughs> all right. I, I derailed us a little bit there. <laughs> okay. I'm going to be the showrunner now. I got this. 